0: And then I started to see, now wait, being told as a young black man that we don't express ourselves and we don't know how to. But me, I'm coming from a world where all I saw was black men expressing their feelings and emotions on stage because I'm coming from the poetry world. So now I'm like, Mm. how cool would that be if I actually personified these emotions and states of beings as humans?
1: What's up this is your brother Jeff Johnson and welcome to another episode of men thrive the podcast I am thrilled to be your host and even more on tiptoed anticipation as we get to have another episode of talking to an amazing brother deciding to thrive over survive but before we do that this week has seen a whole lot as most weeks do we saw my dear brother Dr. Cornell West write a scathing letter of resignation to Harvard University. And I don't think that many of us can be surprised. We have seen time and time again that many institutions that though they may be prestigious are not always well equipped to handle the nuances of black intelligentsia, especially those That are non-traditional. And so without going into a whole lot of detail, I recommend you read the letter and hear it in his own words. I am excited to see not only those going to institutions on their own terms as opposed to on, I think, antiquated terms. But those that are deciding to go to HBCUs, as we've seen Ta-Nehisi Coates decide to do at Howard University. So there are options for us to take our genius, even our nuanced and unusual and sometimes non-traditional genius, which I think is fantastic to the places that best suit us whether it's an HBCU, whether it's an institution that is a PWI, or whether it is just a place that makes sense for our brilliance to be able to thrive. And speaking of brilliance, my man, Lee Merritt, attorney extraordinaire, many of you know him for the countless number of civil rights cases that he's been involved in, announced this week that he is running for the attorney general of the state of Texas. I don't know how many of you know, but it is unusual for us as African-Americans to win in statewide races. In fact, we are in single digits in almost every statewide position since Reconstruction. That's right. We have only had two elected black governors and three black governors. And and then those numbers, uh, again, they are in the single digits, whether you're talking about attorney general, secretary of state, state treasurer, because it's very difficult for us to win statewide, especially when the vast majority of African-Americans who run statewide are. Are Democrats in states that overall are run by Republicans. So big up to Lee Merritt as he takes this dive into extremely treacherous waters in an extremely difficult state to run in anyway. Please pay attention to his campaign, find out about him, and even if you're not in the state of Texas, support him because I think he can be an amazing attorney general in a state that needs one. And so without further ado, I want to get right into our show. I think sometimes I feel like I have the best job in the world because I get to introduce some of you to some incredible brothers, some who you've known, some who you don't know, and have conversations with them that are often unlike conversations that they've had anywhere else. And so and this week is no different. This brother is a playwright. He's a poet. He's an actor. He's a director. He's a producer of original work. And my man is from Queens, Um, spent a ton of time in the DMV, went to school in Maryland, and I think is just a brilliant, brilliant storyteller who is committed to elevating the complexity of who we are as people. He's got a critically acclaimed piece, and I laugh because sometimes the critically acclaimed pieces are the ones that put us in a box because that's how many people are introduced to us and know us. But this brother, through Thoughts of a Colored Man, it premiered in the Syracuse stage in 2019-2020 season, transferred to Baltimore center stage, and man, listen, this brother is going to Broadway. So without further ado, I am excited to introduce to some and present to others my brother, Keenan Scott II. What's up, y'all? Welcome to Men Thrive. And man, this is fantastic. I mean, this is our second season. We're excited about bringing a whole new set of brothers, some that you know, some that you don't know, some that you wish you would have known. And at Men Thrive, you know what we do. We, We have conversations with brothers about how they've decided to thrive in their lives versus simply survive. And this episode is no different. In fact, I'm incredibly excited about this guest. He's a playwright, he's a poet, he's an actor, he's a director, he's a producer of original work from Queens, New York. And what I've been most excited about is his intentionality around Black men and elevating the complexity of who we are, telling our stories in a different kind of way and not running from the full beauty and horror of who we are as human beings. He has workshop at the notable theaters such as the National Black Theater, New York Theater workshop, arena stage. And listen, thoughts of a colored man, if you have not seen it, it's gonna be harder for you to see it. It would have been easier for you to see it if you was at Syracuse stage 2019 and 2020 season in Baltimore and at the center stage and Now it's going to be tough, man, because this brother is on Broadway. And so I am excited about who this brother is, not just as a playwright and a director, but as a man, as a servant, as a storyteller, as somebody that's committed to our community and to our people. And so without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce the Men Thrive family to Brother Keenan Scott II. What's up, brother?
0: Hey, how are you? Thank you, brother. I appreciate
1: man. I am so glad to be with you. I'm Thank over you. the moon excited for you, man. Before we get into anything, mm-hmm. tell me what it felt like the moment there was confirmation mm-hmm. that you were going to be on Broadway.
0: Man, you know, to this day, it's it's hard to wrap your head around, man. You know, being, being a New Yorker, I've traveled those streets, got off the train at Port Authority a million times, been in the theater district, you know, as an adult, starting to go to plays and things like that. But even as a New Yorker, Queens, I was, what, maybe 45 minutes max. Yeah. From, uh, from from the theater district never would envision being on broadway and having a marquee and you know all of those great things so it's, it's hard to wrap my head around it's, it's truly a blessing man it's something i never envisioned and that's not to say i didn't believe in myself or you know felt like i, I didn't put in enough work but this broadway is is, is the pinnacle of theater, right? It's it's the pinnacle of of storytelling in a lot of ways and stage performance. So it's a beautiful thing. And I know it means a lot to my family. And that's what I kind of pride myself on, making my family proud and hopefully making sure that all their sacrifices don't go in vain, you know?
1: Oh, I totally understand that. And so when you think about this work, man, and kind of this moment, if you will, that for a lot of people is like that seminal moment, right? If, If you're a ball player, when you get to the NBA, it's an indication of, a right. vindication right. of. I'm interested in knowing, do you remember where you were and what you were experiencing when you actually believed that this could be your profession?
0: It's funny. I was going to remind you, too. I met you in undergrad. Um, I went to Frostburg State University, and you did, a, you did a lecture there some years ago. This had to be, man, 14 yeah, that was years like, ago, maybe? I was going to say, that,
1: was that like, 06.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 About 14, 15 years ago. And and, and ironically, that's the year I started writing this play. Wow. Um, I actually started writing Thoughts of a Colored Man, assault my sophomore year, undergrad, Frostburg State University, when Bush was still in office. This was around (laughs) the same time that Sean Sean Bell was killed in, in my neighborhood in Queens. So a lot was going on at that time. And, you know, people always ask me, I was like, I started writing this like three administrations ago. My senior year, which was 08 to 09, I presented Thoughts of a Color Man as a student project. My theater allowed me um, a couple of days in a black box theater for me to do my thing. I didn't know what I was doing at all. (laughs) There was was a lot going on. We didn't even have enough black brothers to fulfill all the roles. I had to go around campus. It was only three in the department at the time, including myself um, as far as I was able to do it. So I enlisted friends of mine and I thought would be able to be on stage. So I turned into an acting coach at the same time. So That's I, wore, serious, man. I wore a lot of hats. Um I was acting coach. I was head of promo. I was the director. You know, I designed the lights, costume, you know, <laughs> name it, I did it. Um, but I say that to say before I really truly knew what representation was in a way, you know, like I, I just I just do, I create, I'm I'm a doer, you know, I don't sit back and wait. And when I premiered it on Frostburg's campus, my senior year it went crazy. I sold out mm. all three shows in like two hours in our cafeteria, wow. 175 seats each. I felt that was the moment with a demographic on campus that felt overlooked and didn't feel included, felt special yeah. in that moment. So it wasn't just Keenan's play, This this was our play. And I saw that for the first time and to see how successful the play was before I graduated made me realize like, wait, I might have something on my hands here. I went to school to study acting. I never studied okay. formally. Coming from the slam poetry world, you know, yeah. I, I read on stage, you know. Yeah. But after seeing a success of the play and how people felt and how they responded to it, I was like, wait, this is this is not just something that I wrote. I might have something here, you know. And I saw what representation, you know, really meant up close with my peers and, and, and the student body of Frostburg at that time. So I think that point is what really made me say, you know, I really could do this. You know, before then, you know, I wanted to be an actor, I wanted to be in the music industry and all of those things, but when doing Thoughts of a Color Man for the first time made me realize how powerful it was owning and producing Mm. your narratives. And that ownership is what really got me to say, you know what, if I can own what I do, and if I could produce what I do and have control over the narratives of, of myself and my people and my community, that's what was important to me. And I think that was the moment that showed me, you know, I, I might be able to do this.
1: And tell me a little bit about that. Right. Because within the acting world, there is a level of reverence for the stage mm-hmm. and in, to some degrees, a level of fear
0: Absolutely. with the
1: stage. Were you committed to the stage before you got to Frostburg, or was it that experience that said to you, wait a minute, there's something about the stage that's different, and now I have a fascination for it that I didn't before I started doing this?
0: It started several years earlier. So originally being from New York, I moved to Southern Maryland when I was younger with my family. So Mm -hmm. I I was living um, in a suburb outside of DC at the time. And I started performing slam poetry on stage when I was 15 years old. Okay. So I was literally be in school during the day, high school, and then at night, whatever the open mics were, I was going in, sneaking in clubs, and, because clearly I wasn't old enough to be there, and I started performing <laughs> in, the, in the DC poetry scene. I was fortunate to come across a lot of the deaf poets at the time, and, mm. and I started getting, building my rep in DC, because clearly I was the young baby face kid that was performing with adults, so people started to know me, because I was the youngest one on the scene at the time. So that's when my infatuation with the stage started. At the time, I was a ball player, played basketball, AAU, played for high school and all of those things. So I really didn't consider myself a performer. That really wasn't my thing, right? I was I was, you know, on the shy side, wasn't really, you know, consider myself a performer. The only time I performed in front of people was when I, I was playing ball, right? So that's when my infatuated started with the stage. I started competing at open mics and slam poetry competitions and things of that nature about three to four years before I got to college. And that's okay. when I got bit by that bug. And growing up, you know, being a huge fan of TV and film, and Spike Lee being like a big influence on my storytelling and, and how I see our people portrayed on the screen. I was told, "Well, if you want to act on camera, you got to learn on the stage, formally. Yeah. You know, because yeah. you can act on stage, you can act anywhere." So I kind of took my sensibilities and the things I learned. While doing poetry and creating these characters and these narratives in my storytelling of poetry, and I took that into into my training. You learn audiences yes, exactly. Like if, if exactly. you're
1: just a screen actor, you don't have the same experience of timing. You don't have the same experience of how an audience responds to mm-hmm. this versus that. And as somebody who's been a speaker, I understand that. But I'll never forget there was a there was one of these actor round tables. Mm -hmm. And Sam Jackson just kept pushing Mm -hmm. Will Smith. He's like, dude, you got to come on stage. Like, dude, you got to come on stage. Like, I love what you do. I appreciate what you do. But brother, you're never going to be full until you have this stage experience. And I watched my son start getting involved in drama and they had an incredible drama program at his high school and he fell in love with it And, and also learned he had some talent in it. But even now, you can't get him to conceptualize that as a occupational aspiration, Mm -hmm. because it ain't hot. It ain't that cool shit. It's not
0: at all. (laughs) (laughs) It's not at all. Until you become Denzel, it's not cool. I went to go see
1: Denzel's Julius Caesar. I don't remember who I knew at the time Mm -hmm. that got me those tickets. Those
0: tickets tickets go.
1: Oh no, In in fact, it was like Alexander. There's nothing you doing to get these tickets right now. Mm-hmm. But I realize even watching my son, there's also something about the stage that creates a greater sense of power. Like your experience of bringing characters to life and even the actor's experience of becoming them on stage. Why do you think that there is a power with the stage that's so unique and
0: nuanced? I feel you as a speaker... Myself, my origins in poetry. I have a very good friend that's a stand-up comedian, which it's it's kind of the same technique. Yeah. Um, yeah. The energy, um, the timing, feeling the energy of the audience is nothing like that. You don't feel that on the camera. You know, on camera, you have to hopefully create that energy with whoever's in the scene with you, and that's a technique as well, which which is not easy. But the stage is something powerful about it because it's the energy that the audience brings to the theater, and it's the energy that the actors do. And for me. The character development is the greatest part of it, you know, because it could be similarities between the characters that you're playing, but it's really the character development and the studying to get you to that point. Like I tell anybody, any um, aspiring actor, writer, director, you have to read, you have to read, (laughs) research, you know, it's not just, oh, remembering lines. That's the easy part. Once you really get into Mm -hmm. it, remembering of the lines is that's day one. You know, the nuances come in when you study, you research whether it's a historical play, a contemporary play, you have to really get into the psyche of the characters you're going to play. You know, I was told one time that, you know, because none of our characters are perfect that we play, we're all flawed, just like in real life, that you can't judge the characters that you're playing. Even if your character is inherently evil, you can't judge them because that character thinks what they're doing is right.
1: Which is why so many real actors will talk about depression that they have felt in in becoming a character, or the heaviness that they've had to wear, them having to disconnect themselves from people because they couldn't be this dark if they were connected to the light of people who are normally in their life.
0: That's what makes acting and the stage powerful to me, just because of all the energy. One show is not gonna be like the next.
1: So you're born in New York. Mm -hmm. How long are you there?
0: I moved to Maryland around the age of like 10. I was just about to go into like junior high school.
1: So what was it like for you coming up? What was life like?
0: Well, those are two different worlds, right? So I'm from Palminar Housing Projects in Flushing, Queens. That's 90s New York and everything Mm -hmm. that, you know, financially, we wasn't the best off, you know, on and off welfare at times. So financially, we definitely had a lot of struggles there as a family. Once my parents had split, we moved to uh, Maryland uh, a few years later and the financial hardship continued, right? So now mm. you know, with single mom, me and my sister, we was in Maryland and that's a different environment. Still still in mm. lower income housing when we first moved to Maryland, but the environment was different. I'm going from the inner city of New York to the suburbs of Maryland. So it was a, it was a different world for me. So it was like that duality, right? It was the, It was the financial struggle. I had to mature and grow up quicker. In a lot of ways, to help support my mom at times, I started working very young and supporting, helping my mother, you know, with, with the household at times, my sister and I. But also, then on the other time, it was it was fun. You know, New York in the 90s was a vibrant time, you know, the, yeah. the, the the just the look, the feel, the energy. New York was 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 definitely a different place than it is now. I would like to say after gentrification, you know, um, <laughs> it was that duality. You know, I, I had a great childhood. I had a lot of fun, have a lot of you know great friends and I had a lot of great family members. I was raised by a village. So all of that was great. But then also, on the other hand, it was a huge financial struggle. Most of my childhood.
1: You're writing about this complexity of men when did manhood become complex for you, right? Because I know when I think about me coming up, I'm I'm looking at my dad, I look at my grandfather, I look at my pastor, I look at my uncles. And so that at the very least is this circle of complexity because I know my dad ain't like my pastor and my grandfather's not like my uncle. Was that conscious for you as a kid?
0: It was, not as a very young kid. For me, things started to click for me when we moved. Because hmm. now I was taken out of my environment. Like yourself, you know, I had I my father, which is retired NYPD. Um, so I saw that, right? You know, I saw my grandfather, which is a Vietnam vet.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: kind of similar, different men, but the same as far as law enforcement, military, you, yeah. know, you know, those kind of guys. And then I saw the kids in my neighborhood. So mm-hmm. I-, I saw street guys, you know what I mean? I saw the hustlers. I saw all of that as well. So I understood that difference. But for me, it was normal. You know, coming from Queens, it was very diverse. Queens is the most diverse borough in New yeah. York and, and it has yeah. the most dialects spoken. So for me, it was normal to see everybody. Even though I lived in a project, it was normal for me to see every type of person, hear, hear every type of language, the th- different types of food. That was normal for me. And even the, the the elements of the street, I think growing up in New York, that's normal, right? So now I moved to Southern Maryland. Now things become black and white. Figuratively <laughs> and literally.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. it's
0: very much so like, pick your side, is black yeah. or white, I wasn't used to that. Because now it was like, wait, are white people supposed to act like this? Oh, black people, oh, I'm supposed to talk like this? I'm supposed mm. to walk. And New York is like, you know, yes, I'm a kid, but it's like, yo, I, I am who I am, you are who you are. That's how New yeah. York is in a, in a, in a way, yeah. it's like, culturally, it's, 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 a, it's a very prideful city, right? So that's when my eyes started to open up. Now I'm a little older, now I'm reaching my teenage years, now I'm starting to see those complexities. Now I have those complexities in my friends. So now I have friends that are, you know, studious, straight A student. Me, I took the side of versus the streets. I took the sports route. Right. I played football growing mm-hmm. up. I was heavy into basketball. I played with a, a lot of phenomenal athletes that made it to the college and pro level. So I was on a fascinating teams growing up, which was the time of my life. But then I also, you know, have friends that now were starting to be into the street life as well. And I've always had that in my family, you know, some of them, you know, being engaged in the streets and things like that during the seventies and eighties, and especially during the crack epidemic of New York and things of that nature. So for me, I've always seen the complexity of black men, even if I wasn't able to explain it. Even at the yeah. time before I was writing, I was I was living it, I was seeing it. And I was very much so the kid that didn't need to learn the hard way, you know? <laughs> so you didn't,
1: you didn't need to learn the hard way.
0: No, not at all. And, and, and that's not to say I didn't do things, but I say that to say, you know, I know those family members that that, that might have went to prison. I know, you know, yeah. I know the guys that might have did this. So I, I kind of didn't need to learn that way. I was like, OK, that's not I don't need to do that. It was big for me to not let my mom's sacrifices go in vain. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to have to, you know, she worry about me enough being a young black man growing up. I didn't want to add extra stress to her as far as, you know, seeing what she had to do firsthand and, and what we had to go through as a family. I never wanted her, all her sacrifices and hard work to go in vain. So that kind of also kept me straight as well. And I was always retrospective, you know, as my friends would say, Keena, you was always a smart one. You was different. You know, whether I was doing exactly what they was doing, it got to a point where it was like, nah, kena you don't do something else different from us, you know? And I never really knew what that meant. I didn't. And and I appreciate my friends for, saving me in that way. Because
1: I'm almost even feeding an identity you didn't know you had yet.
0: At all, at all, because I never viewed myself like that. I was that guy like, yo, you doing it, I'm doing it. I'm down, you down. Mm. We, we do everything together. We're together every day, 24-7. You, you know how young boys are, and ripping and running. and and. But it got to a point where certain friends of mine were like, Bikini, you different. And I never understood it. If you fight, I'm fighting. If we do this, we you know, that's how I was. But it was like a no, though. You're not us. You're, you're different. You're smart, and they didn't necessarily talking about grades, right? They wasn't yeah. talking about necessarily education in school, which baffles me to this day that a thirteen year old can articulate, "No, you're different,"
1: and celebrate it. So mm-hmm. acknowledge the difference, celebrate it, and then create a level of accountability for you, which you and I both know. I got some grown ass men as friends that don't know how to create levels of Absolutely. accountability or Absolutely. have a level of comfort in you're different than me. Right. And that doesn't create a sense of one of us being better than each other. This is different. And so I'm not going to try to pretend like I'm you. Don't you try to pretend like you're me. So
0: that complexity was never foreign to me. Um, I, and I was just blessed in that way to have those type of guys around me. And to this day, they've always celebrated me. There's never been any animosity. It's like we all knew who we were and what our purpose was. And I think they realized my purpose way before I even noticed it.
1: Man, that's beautiful. And, and so... In that and and having that complexity so early, you talked about me being at Frostburg State lecturing and that was the same year you started writing. What led you there? Like what was the process that said, okay, this is of all the things you could have wrote about, of all the things you could have done, of of all the things you wanted to bring to life, why this and why then?
0: So I didn't grow up being well-versed in theater. My first love in life was drawing and painting. I'm an artist in that way. Then I got into writing. Growing up, I was very much so um, a movie buff, uh, like Mm. my father is, like my grandmother was. So I I was always into movies and TV and things of that nature. Theater wasn't something I was exposed to, to be honest. Until I would say what, you know, literature in high school, you know, I read what, you know, what the curriculum is, right? Beowulf, you know, the fences, Glass Menagerie, Doll's House. So the stuff that's in, you know, English Lit, you know, in high school, those are the things that I read. But outside of that, I really wasn't well versed on reading plays or wanted to perform, you know, plays and things of that nature. But once I got to college, now it's like, okay, you're studying in academia and these are the great American plays. Right. Right. Which I appreciated the, the the craft and the talent of these writers, the David Mammoths, the Tennessee Williams, the Henry Ibsens, and, and the Chekhovs. And I studied them all. But for me, what struck me was I didn't see myself in these great American plays. Yep. And a lot has changed since I started college. You know, now, you know, a lot of the playwrights, a lot of my peers that exist in, in the form they do now didn't exist in right? We didn't have a Dominique Morisot. I didn't have a Katori Hall. I didn't have a Donny Love, a Jeremy O'Harris.
1: And let people tell it there wasn't even a market for those creatives because there was this assumption that people of color didn't want to go to to
0: the theater. Exactly. So so it wasn't there in my training. And that's not to say, oh, you know, my my program was great at Frostburg. I, I loved all my professors. All of my professors loved me. But I'm talking more so about the hierarchy and the trickle down effect of academia when it comes to studying at these historically white institutions and how certain things are taught. So for me, I didn't see myself in these great American dramas. I'm an artist and I'm a poet. So now I'm like, maybe I need to create what I'm not seeing. Yeah. And I had a good friend of mine and, and, and I literally just told him this the other day when he reached out to me, My, a good friend of mine, Joshua Skerry, from Baltimore And we was both in a program together. You know, he has a heavy, you know, Baltimore accent. Phenomenal (laughs) actor. Phenomenal, phenomenal. He was in way more plays than I was in college. And I just had an idea. I was like, you know what? I want to create something where we can sound like us. I can sound like a New Mm -hmm. Yorker. You can sound like you from Baltimore. We don't have to take out our blackness. We just can be us on stage. And that was just the original idea. I was like, you know, let me try to write something for me and my guys in a department where we can literally
1: I just literally want to write something where you say mother and father.
0: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Just like that. Right. You know what I mean? So now I'm like, okay, I want to write something where we could be if we was on stage, if we had the opportunity, we could be ourselves. I get the training, all of that. And that was the origins of it my sophomore year. Like I said, a lot was going on at that time. Sean Bell had just got murdered in my family's neighborhood in Queens, literally like around the corner from my grandmother's house, streets that I've played and walked my whole life. And seeing that on the news kind of triggered something in me. At the time, having friends be locked up at the same time. I'm in a state of program. I'm kind of having survivor's remorse because here mm-hmm. I am in college. You know, some of my guys are not. So really, I wasn't even considering myself a playwright. So huh. that was the inclination of really just wanting to be represented. This was before anything else before. And I just to be represented. I wanted to be able to be myself. I didn't see myself, my communities, me being born in the 80s, a kid of the 90s teenager coming up to in the 2000s I didn't see myself in any of the work I was reading and I was partaking in a craft where I didn't see myself so early on I just wanted to create that so at the time me being a poet I just started to put my best poems together like all right these are the (laughs) best pieces I've done on stage let me see if there's a story here and then I started to categorize those poems. Like, oh, okay, these are my love poems, you know, that, I, that I'm writing about, you know, girls. <laughs> these, this is, these are my hip hop, super lyrical pieces. So these are my passionate pieces. You yeah. know, these are my historical pieces that I write. I'm, I'm, I've always been big into history and reading uh, about our, our people and our culture. So these, these are my, these these pieces have wisdom in them. And then I started to see, now wait, being told as a young Black man that we don't express ourselves and we don't know how to. But me, I'm coming from a world where all I saw was Black men expressing their feelings and emotions on stage because I'm coming from the poetry world. So now I'm like, mm. how cool would that be if I actually personified these emotions and states of beings as humans? So then I started yep. to say, what if my characters actually were love, passion, wisdom, lust, and how would that be if I personified them as human beings? And that was the origins of Thoughts of a Colored Man 15 years ago.
1: Well, and what's funny is that that's where I was getting ready to go next, because because literally right now with Men Thrive, what we're doing is we've got something where we're saying feel something, share something. Mm-hmm. And it's so crazy because as black men, we've literally been conditioned to define manhood through how stoic we can be. But I think, Keenan, what, when I really started thinking about it, I think initially for me it was... Well, we're not gonna say when we're depressed, we're not gonna say when we're sad. But we're not even sharing good shit. Like we won't even share when we are overly happy because we don't want to look goofy
0: or soft quote unquote soft. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or or Mm -hmm. even
1: excited because I'm supposed to act like I've been there before. And so in conceptualizing what you wanted to turn into human form, had you been in a place where you were really clear about personifying transparency in your real life versus only on stage. And kind of what was the trajectory for you in living what you were writing? Was this an aspirational piece for you or was it a reflective one?
0: A little bit of both. I'm 34 now. So I started writing a piece at 19. I've grown up with this piece, literally. Yeah, yeah, I've grown yeah. up with these characters. And, yeah. and, that, and, that's,
1: and that's great context.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and that's what I tell people. So I'm not going to sit there and say, oh, I was also transparent and reflective. I I was 19 years old. And at the time, all of my characters were around that age. That's all I knew. I like to believe that I was I've always been a little mature, a little wise behind my years. But, you know, how much life did I live at 19, 20 years old? So my play started to evolve and that transparency started to evolve as I grew as well. So my conception of love changed in the play. You know, I really didn't know a deep sense of love at 19 like I do now as a husband and a father, you know, so for real. Those, those complexities started to change for me. What I thought was wise and, and and me reading about history when I was 19 is different when really gaining some wisdom in the world, really going through life obstacles as an adult. Right. I, up until that point, I only had my upbringing that challenged me. So for me. I think it was aspirational and reality. You know, there were some things that were very true, very poignant, but a lot of it was aspirational. A lot of relationships, a lot of dynamics that I wrote in a piece early on I wanted to inspire to or I wrote things I didn't have. I've always been a dreamer. So I Mm. wish things were this way. So let me write what I wish things would be. So it was a little bit of both. And I've spent 15 years with these characters and this piece, like anything else I've, I've worked on, which I've worked on a lot at this point, no piece will ever compare to this because it was a little bit of everything wrapped up in one. And, and I can say these characters grew up with me because they are not the same like they were when I was 19 years old writing these characters. The depth and the complexity of these characters are so much deeper than they were during that time. And I would like to believe in life, I'm more truthful and more transparent than I was at 19. And I hope to to keep on going, to to find more transparency in my life and, and, and to continue to find that truth. I don't think that's something that all comes at once. I think that comes with growth and maturity and evolution. And I think I have done that since I've been 19. And, and I want to continue to go, you know, like I said, as a... As well, well, a, as I, well
1: a, I was going to st- stay there for a second because I, I want to talk about sure, the husband sure. and father piece. Yeah. but But sometimes the universe uses our creations and our proclamations almost as fuel. And so I'm curious how you creating these characters, have they in some ways been kind of those accountability angels on your shoulder that have pushed you in a way that may not have had you sure. had had this not been so much a part of your psyche and your conscious, both as a professional and as a man.
0: I think so. You know, I know my experience as a young black man and I know as black men, we have a shared experience in this country. But Delving into these characters, which some of these characters are nothing like myself, it caused me to be more insightful for other men I would come across. Mm. And it opened my conversation in a way. I love having conversations with people, all people, but... You know, in, in doing this piece, I've, I, I always reflected back to it. When I had conversations, I can't I can literally pinpoint so many parts of the play where it's like I remember where that piece came from because I had a conversation about X, Y, Z. Or I know I changed this particular scene because I came across this person in the subway and it inspired me to do this. You know, my character of depression in my play. I added a scene once I graduated from Frostburg. I, I shortly ran back to New York. But when I came out, my first job was working in a grocery store, not knocking that, you know, but here I am with a degree. I did everything I was supposed to do. I did my four years, you know, while I was in college, my mom, she lost the house that I was in during high school. So I came back to a one one bedroom apartment that my mom was staying in. So I'm on the couch and now I'm having to work at the grocery store in the town that I went to high school. So now I'm seeing people. Ooh. So now I'm, I'm, I'm seeing people. I was fortunate enough to be president of my class in high school. I was prom king, all of those things. So now I'm back in the grocery store. Now people are seeing me. And I never forget one of my old friends seeing me like, you work here? What you doing here? You ain't supposed to be here. <laughs> and at that time, I did go through my bout of depression during that time. And for me to empower myself and to to help me climb out of that, which has always been therapy for me, which is my writing, I wrote that into the piece. I literally wrote that piece as is, and I added that for my, my character depression. So that's what I mean by this play and these characters have been therapy in a lot of ways. Because that scene or the complexities of that character wouldn't have existed if I didn't actually experience it myself. A lot of things that are played went hand in hand with things that I actually experienced in life or whether it's my best friend or or, you know, a close family member, whatever the case may be. So I don't think that I would have been able to reach certain depths at the ages that I did if I didn't have a piece like this that I was working on, you know, kind of coinciding as I was getting older.
1: Because so much content is rooted in, directed towards reflecting women, especially black women. What are the responses been like? And I mean that from, are you getting sisters saying, you help me better understand my husband? You help me I, better understand my son. yep. I, um,
0: I, and, and that is that is the beauty. You know, I was, I was raised by Black women. My mom and all of her sisters, you know, my grandmothers when they were alive. I'm the oldest male cousin. The next one didn't come after me until like 10 years later. So, wow. you know, with my sister, my cousin that's right under me, I, I, I grew up around Black women, strong Black women, hardworking women. So for me, it was special to me to hear the responses of, you know, Mm. I want to go home and hug my black man more. Mm. It it makes me want to have these conversations with him that I don't have. I understand my son more. I saw my son on stage. I Mm. saw my father on stage. I saw my brother on stage. I saw my lover on stage. And that's a beautiful thing to me because that's what I wanted this piece to do. Because there are a lot of complexities that are not understood by people that are not Black men. And everybody has their own plight, don't get me wrong. And I'm not trying to compare anybody's. But for our particular plight, it's hard to to explain. Um, And especially with a lot of the social... And oppressive constructs of this country. So to develop a play in this way, and and to have people receive it in that way, and especially my sisters, is is, is a beautiful thing. And I've heard a lot of positive feedback over the years of how they felt, even about you know the black men in the, in, the, in their lives, and, and and that's important and that's special to me.
1: And and that was why I thought it was so important, because because even at Men Thrive, man, we we say regularly we we're created to aggressively love black men. And I don't have anything against white men, Latin right. men, not anybody. Right. I'm just like, I so seldom see anybody with a commitment to aggressively love us. And at some point it feeds my already existing imposter syndrome because mm-hmm. I'm like, well, damn it. Why? Why am I not great enough for somebody to be intentional about? loving us and 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 that's no no slight to sisters because sisters might be the only ones that have a level of intentionality around loving absolutely. us absolutely but even their intentionality is somewhat sprinkled in with a lot of history and dysfunction and sometimes lack of communication
0: it's a cycle of love that has been broken so many times within our community amongst brothers and sisters you know well, and, and it's a
1: cycle it's a cycle of love that has been under attack Yep, that's exactly. And and, and exactly. so whether and and we we often talk about post traumatic slave disorder, right? But but you and I both know I don't know if there's anything that was more damaging than literally saying you can get federal aid if this dude don't live in the house
0: if he's not in the house, correct? Like
1: like slavery was one thing, but we were still jumping the broom in
0: correct. slavery.
1: We we right. were not unclear that we define. It was the relationships about
0: our families, correct?
1: Exactly, but when when you, the government says you can't get aid to allow your family to survive right. unless this Negro don't live in the house, doesn't have connectivity, that's the kind of systematic attack against black marriage, black family that is is so painful. I don't even think we talk about it enough. I'm curious, brother. When we started doing man cave on BT,
0: mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm.
1: there were a lot of people that were like, "Yo, is this like?" The barbershop. And I'm like, no, like, I, I, I don't want to diminish the cultural value proposition of the barbershop. But let me be clear with you. The barbershop is not about my transparency. The barbershop is about honesty about everything else. Right. And so I, I roll up in the barbershop and we don't have an honest ass conversation about everybody. But seldom do you see brothers rolling up in the barbershop like, yo, man, shorty hurt me. And I don't even know how I'm going to deal with it, bro. Or I'm scared to go to the doctor. And did y'all get y'all PSA? And so what I'm curious about, Kenan, is what has been the responses of men, Black men in particular, that's most surprised you?
0: I don't know if I can say surprise, but I would say overall, I feel a sense that, for the first time, especially for the stage, because I know TV has achieved it at times, film has achieved it at times, and, and, we, and we can come up with those examples. But for the stage, in my yeah. experience, yeah, as we spoke about early in the conversation, the stage is so different because it's real, it's live. You feel the presence, you feel the energy, you physically see yeah. the actors, and, and they're yeah. steps away from you. What I've heard uh, for the most part from Black men when they've seen the play, honestly, a lot of times, it's their first play they've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Especially from the younger generation. You know, older guys that say, Hey, I grew up in the theater. I used to go to the theater all the time, and they'll, they'll name their local regional theater. Yeah.
1: Especially when we're talking about the 80s and earlier, where you had black stages. Correct. I mean, I grew up right. in Cleveland with Caramu House, and we know the arena stage, and, and you right. had these local black theaters that had resources that, that had production. So, yeah, like I never thought about it. The older yeah.
0: generation, they're like, Young Brother. You're you doing you doing well, you know. I saw August Wilson back in, you know, whatever year, and you know, and, and you carrying on that torch, and you know, we, we see you, and that's powerful for me.
1: Oh no, for that's the younger it.
0: generation. It's this is my first play. This is my first time not only seeing a play, but then you're telling me I come to see a play where I see myself on stage. I know at least one of these brothers I see on stage, I know one of the seven, I might know all of them that yeah. that's been the most powerful thing to me and for brothers to be able to feel comfortable to come to me and be transparent and open about how they feel. You know, I expect that from my boys. I grew up with, I expect that from family yeah. members in a way, if we have that relationship, but to have a complete stranger, an audience member coming to me and say, I appreciate you. I saw myself in this character. I never seen it that way before. And it helped me see some things in myself and whatever they decide to divulge to me. So I guess that would be the most surprising thing I could say to where having, you know, numerous black men come up to me and just feel like they've just been seen. They've been heard. That is something for them, something that they can claim. A lot of times people don't realize the power in just seeing yourself.
1: I'm going to tell you something. I had a brother who yesterday I told him I was going to be talking to you for the Mm -hmm. podcast. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to say his name and you'll understand why. But he said, I saw the piece when it was in Baltimore. Okay. And he was like, I just want you to tell him he saved my marriage. Oh God. He was watching the production. And they came to a point where he didn't say anything. The rest of the production, he said, I was stuck. And... Afterwards, he said, I went home and they literally like they had filed. They had filed, bro. And he said, I just saw this piece and I did not realize to the extent that I had denied you love. And he was like, I just saw it on stage talking to me and I realized I had given you provision, I had given you protection, I would given you anger, I would given you frustration, and I never fed the love in me enough to be able to give it to you. And if you would give me an opportunity to help me feed that piece of me, I promise I'd never do it again. And bruh, when a piece of art has the ability to elevate not only a level of authenticity but can indict us in the moment and lift a veil of truth and honesty. And then we can actually be moved enough in the moment and convicted enough in the moment to shift. Brother, that, that's the spirit moving in such an incredible way. And so I promised him that I would share that with you.
0: And to that brother, I wish him well and all the love in the world. And to hear something like that, it, it floors me. You know, Mm. because I like to consider and I always tell people I'm driven by the spirit. I'm driven by our ancestors. I tell people that all the time. Anybody that becomes a part of the thoughts of a color man family, whether it's the team, the actors that you see on stage, when we're in rehearsal behind closed doors, I tell all of them you are entering into a family. And this piece is spiritual. I don't know what you may believe, but you follow. This piece is spiritual and you will feel it and people do feel it because of what was created with the original people that started it so many years ago with myself and believing in that vision and believing in moving in the spirit in that way. And and that's what I said earlier. This piece, I will never do another piece that will be like this piece. Hopefully, I will do a lot of other powerful work, work with a lot of people, and be able to create a lot of powerful, moving work of art. But nothing will feel like this. And, And for that reason, for you saying that and so long ago just to think that this small idea, because at the time it was small, because yeah. I didn't know what I was doing, to wanted to just feel seen and heard and loved in all of my complexity. And, you know, the wise parts of me, the passionate parts of me, the lustful parts of me, the loving parts of me, I wanted all of those parts to be seen in a very authentic and truthful way. And for that brother and, and many others to be able to see the depths of that in his piece that's what's important to me and that's what this piece is for and i and i also tell everybody that works on this piece with me that this piece is bigger than all of us i knew Mm -hmm. i knew for a while now that this piece was even bigger than me you know what that brother told you in his marriage is so much bigger than a stage play that's his life that's his love that's his family that's what's important and if i in any way can help feed that with my walk and my transparency because I'm not perfect either, or the art or the work that I create, that's what it's about. And that's what I'm here for. And that is my purpose. And to hear things like that is is really moving and powerful to me. So thank you for sharing that with me. That's what the piece is about. And over the years, I've heard and seen things like that to where it's uh, Black men uh, are really able to see themselves in a way and see the full aspects of themselves all at once. I know they appreciate it.
1: You you said something, brother, and and it was it's just about the gumption of a nineteen year old mm-hmm. to write a piece. But what I heard you saying is, I don't think you thought about the gravity of what it could become. No. I think you just thought about this is in me and it needs to get out. And no. and I'm wondering, mm-hmm. as a creative, how do you keep challenging that? Like because because the older we get the more our aspirations get focused and sometimes the more that creates a logic that says, I don't need to do this right now, or no, this isn't a good idea right now. As a, as a creative, how do you own your visions to manifestation?
0: Everything to me is about urgency. And for me, I try to always keep that fire lit. That urgency time is of the essence. We will mm-hmm. not be here forever. I won't be here forever. And I feel like a way for me to be here forever is through my art. So for mm-hmm. me, everything is always urgent. For me, knowing that my mind will change, my psyche will change as I continue to go grow older and experience different things. For me, I've always tried to create as much work as possible when I feel it. Whether it comes out now, tomorrow, two years from now, I always try to stay in that mindset of that urgency of, of now.
1: But, 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 how, but how do you, how do you know... To say yes, right? Because it's one thing when you say, okay, I'm going to do this. Uh, This came to me, this, this is idea. And I've got this sense of urgency. So I'm going to create, I think there's a level of courage also in saying, I'm going to do this. Is it your ego? Is it, you, you talked about spirit. What is it that says to you, this came to me, I have to do it. Not not I got to do it with a sense of urgency so it right, gets right, done. Right. Just the fact that I got the gumption to say I'm about to create this.
0: You know, I don't know if I can thoroughly explain that because that is just in me, but it's the people. I cannot tell you how many times I put Thoughts of a Colored Man down, was done with it, tired mm-hmm. with it. So many times it's the, it's the people. I'll get a message. Hey, I saw your play at such and such two years ago and it made me feel this way. You saved my life in this way oh, my little brother, you know, he wants to go into theater now after seeing your play. Those are the things that say, okay, I can't stop. I got to keep on doing this. It's really the people. And it's it's so many times that I've heard things in that manner. And I feel as God that come right at the right time, whatever it is, whether it's a text message, a call, a random person on the street, something happens to say, keep on doing this one. Now, listen, there's plenty of things that I've worked on that will never see the light of day, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. as an artist, you know, we work on many, yeah. many things, but projects like this is is it's always been those reminders from from various things to say you have to keep doing this because this is special this is the work that you need to be doing you can't put this one down so that that's the best explanation I can say I don't know I get it' ego I don't create no no I just like,
1: wondered right because for yeah I'm just yeah. not
0: driven I'm just not driven by that as an artist what are you driven so, by who do you do this for my family and I do it for us as a people and and that's not to say oh, I'm trying to save everybody. But me, I very much so feel the sense of responsibility. Like I said, I have have an array of different types of friends, right? I literally have friends that are lawyers, doctors, civil workers, law enforcement, and I have friends that are in prison or have been to prison. So for me, since I've been able to achieve certain things and I have certain abilities that maybe some of them may not have, I feel the sense of responsibility to do what I know how to do and, and the talents that have been placed in me. And that's what mm-hmm. I do it for. I always think about the person in our community that has not make it out, that will not make it out. My ancestors that I knew worked tirelessly for years and years and years. And it's not even slavery. I'm talking about my grandfather. Somebody yeah. actually touched, loved and hugged. You know what I mean? My father, my uncle, cousins, those are the people I do it for. Because I feel a sense of responsibility to say, hey, I have these gifts and talents to be able to, help push our culture forward to do things that maybe the next person can't do. And that's what I do it for. And that's where I always go back. And this also answers your question. I always go back to my purpose on those days where it's like, I'm good. You know, at times it was like, I got to pay my bills. Money's not coming in and I'm not breaking into the industry. People are not paying attention. They're not buying my tickets. You know, I always go back to my purpose and it's always something that happens that, that reminds me of that purpose. And, And I truly believe that what I'm doing now and what I'm going to do is what I need to do and what I have to do because it's my purpose. And I always try to remind myself and visit my purpose in a spiritual way to keep me going with projects like Thoughts of a Color Man and, and many others to say this work has to be completed.
1: So before I let you get out of here, man, how's married life?
0: It's great. Challenging. Challenging. It's it's, it's, it's like I'll tell anybody what I've learned because I haven't been married long. Um we, we just reached two years this year. Me and my wife have been mm-hmm. together longer than two years, but married for two years. Well, I'll tell anybody what I've learned, it'll be the most challenging thing you ever do, like anything tell, else. Tell me
1: why. Why why do you think so?
0: In a great relationship, your counterpart will expose parts of yourself you didn't know was there. <laughs> so that's what makes it challenging. Not not challenging of the 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 coexisting, the living with each other, the the bills. It's it's the fact that a true love partner will show you things about yourself that maybe you've never seen or that you didn't want to see and that you have to face because, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times, depending on how you want to live your life, you can ignore those parts of yourself. You can choose not to hold that mirror up to yourself, but if you want your marriage to be successful and to flourish and to have longevity in it, you will have to hold that mirror up to yourself, and that is the hardest thing you will have to do. The challenge isn't in the counterpart, right? Because the love is there. We, you know, we both know that. <laughs> it's the it's the exposing of the parts of yourself that. Oh you yeah, get, man! I, I, I was really just getting ready to mind. ask
1: you. you know? I was getting ready to ask you. Did you have a camera at my house?
0: That's what I've learned. You know, so that's what makes it challenging, but challenging in a beautiful way, because, as you know, you know, once you get over those hurdles and and, and you go through those things, you come out on the other side better, stronger, with more love, knowing how to love better. And that is the challenging part, realizing that we all love in a way that's comfortable to ourselves. But in Mm. marriage, you have to learn how that person needs to be loved. And that is challenging. And, and, and vice versa.
1: Well, and, and with that, I mean, you, you, you know, I'm, I'm super excited about your project with Sidra. I love Sidra, that's my sister.
0: She, she's great and she believed in me. And, you know, as you know, TV projects are in the works, but I actually started working on that project three years ago with Sidra, before all oh. of this happened. Man, so, you don't um, have to
1: tell me, brother, I, okay. fr- from from the time I had the first meeting with BET to the time the first Man Cave was on the show, was five years.
0: Right. Right.
1: Uh people don't understand how they this, so, how so this thing works, man.
0: And I'm happy to see people excited. But you know, Sidra met me at one of a, a, a workshop we had in New York when one of the actors in my piece was friends with her and say, Hey, there's this young brother coming up. You know, you might need to come see him. He can write. And Sidra came and she watched the show yeah. ever since. Yeah. She, she's treated me like family. I I, I love her dearly, yeah. and, and she believed in my voice, you know, as a writer. She loves talent
1: though, man. She loves oh, and, she loves talent and she loves spirit. And, 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 and that's who she
0: is. And yeah. yep. And, and I felt that from, from day one with her. And, and we've been close ever since. So to be a part of that team with, with the project that she did, I think back in 98, 99, the, 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 the film came out, but for yeah. her wanted to adapted into a TV series, and, and it, trust me, as one of the writers on, on her baby, one of her love projects, it was a beautiful thing, so I was happy to be a part of the team.
1: And that's what I wanted to ask you about, because you, you, you talked about love and, and, and mm-hmm. partnership within this context of marriage, but there's a power that exists in the platonic love yeah, of absolutely. Black people. Absolutely. And I'm curious, because we're launching something that's really around the platonic power, Mm-hmm. In, in our relationships as, as Black people. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious for you, what do you think about what you see right now? Kind of this almost antagonistic relationship between Black men and Black women. What, what's the conversation you think we need to be having that we're not having?
0: I think we need to, in a lot of ways, revisit wh- where our people came from. And I don't necessarily mean in mm-hmm. historical textbook way. You know, our people weren't perfect then. We're not perfect now. But we, we alluded to it. Like you said, when we was denied marriage, we still jumped the broom. When our counterparts were sold off to other plantations, we snuck out to go just to go see them, risked our mm-hmm. lives for maybe one night of passion, one night of love, to get that one last hug, that one last kiss in, in danger. For me, that's powerful to me. And I think that type of connection between us, we need to revisit. That's not to say that clearly that model has to be changed a little bit, right? Times have changed, but we need to revisit why we as Black people still exist now is because of that love and and that fight we had for each other. Because if we didn't, we wouldn't exist. And that was not just rooted in romance. It wasn't just rooted in romance. It it was rooted in, we need to be here, we need to preserve. And granted, we we need love too. Love needs to exist. But I think we need to revisit those things. And that's why I say it's a cycle. There's things that we can say about women, there's things we can say about men, but we need to get back to the point in realizing 50-50, we need each other for different Mm. things. We, 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 We need to literally hold each other up. One can't do without the other. And, and that's not to talk perfection, that is to talk preservation, that is to talk true love, and, and that is to talk spiritual connection between us that we've always had. And I think that needs to be the conversation. You know, I think the strong black independent woman is a badge that our women should have never had to wear. Throughout history, they've had to do a lot of things. And I feel like they shouldn't have to be the strong black woman because of the absence of a man. Hmm. And vice versa, you know, a man shouldn't have to do all things be for the lack there of a woman. So I feel like whatever that union is, we need to revisit those things that caused us to be here, which was that preservation that that our people saw of old. And we, we need to talk about that and get back to the notion of we do need each other regardless of where we've gone, what we've been through and realize that there's been an attack on our love and our black community and whatever shape or form that, that, that happens in, we need to get back to that and dismantle that within our own community. Because even when there was discrimination, when there was redlining, where there was all these things, all these systems to, to stop us, we still found a way to love and we, and we still came back to the black household and the black family.
1: Because mm-hmm. even when
0: we were in our own communities, our education didn't suffer. When That's right. It, when we were separate, our education and suffer. We grew. I we mean, grew.
1: It, it literally was like uh, what, what's that text that people shout on all the time where it says, uh, I know the plans I have for you, plans for you to, to prosper and not decrease. Mm-hmm. There's a set of lines in there that says, while you're in exile, build homes and live in them, plant seed and eat what grows from them have sons and daughters and find wives for your sons and husbands for your daughters right. grow and don't decree. Like it literally is this plan of how do you thrive even in exile? And we are that right. And right. now we act like
0: it didn't happen. Life
1: has to be or that life has to be perfect to thrive.
0: And it doesn't. We are the testament of that. So I just think we need to re- revisit all those things. Man. I hate to see that the clash between us, like I said, you know, things happen, you know, human behavior, human nature, human emotion. But like you said, we don't have to be perfect to build and we, we don't have to be perfect to love. What our people did was we existed through all of those things. And, and that's what caused us to be here. So I just think we just need to revisit that and revisit that family structure.
1: Okay, so I got a lightning round real quick and then I'm going to let you go. So we're going to do a couple of pieces and and one's got to go. So I'm going to give you the name of three things and then you got to tell me which one's got to go.
0: With no explanation, just say it got to go. Okay, cool. Yep.
1: August Wilson, (laughs) James Baldwin, Langston Hughes. One's got to go. (laughs)
0: <laughs> How you do that to me? Jesus Christ. Can I pass? How you do that? No, sir. One oh my
1: th- it was it wasn't meant to be easy.
0: <laughs> I'll say Lancy Hughes. Oh, okay. And he's, he's my, know, and he's my favorite poet of all time. That, but, that was I gotta,
1: but I got to know why. So I got to know why on that one.
0: I'm an educator. I was in the educational system for 11 years. So James Baldwin is, is extremely important to that educational piece. And he's one mm-hmm. of the, the greatest orators we've ever, ever had. August Wilson, I, I, I couldn't take him out because the path that he laid allowed me to walk today. So I couldn't, I couldn't take him out.
1: That's fair. I mean, that, that was a no win. So, yeah. I, I, appreci- you see, I appreciate that. I appreciate you even answering that question. So, this one's going to be a little bit easier. All right. Okay. One's got to go Denzel Washington movies, <laughs> Malcolm X, Hurricane, Mo Better Blues.
0: Ooh. Out of those, Mo Better Blues.
1: And I'm guessing just because it's not, there's the historical piece and importance of right. Bleak Gilliam who I actually think is one of the coolest characters. One, Bleak Gilliam might be one of the best names of a character in a movie that I've ever seen.
0: That is, you said Malcolm X, which is also a Spike Lee joint, so I don't feel bad for X in my (laughs) head.
1: So last one, right? One's got to go. The ability to write, the ability to direct, or the ability to produce.
0: The ability to direct.
1: And tell me why.
0: Me personally, I think everything starts with the written word, whether that's orating it, whether that's reading it, everything starts there. That can't go. And as a producer, you still have vision. A director is a little more detailed on that vision. But as a producer, you see the overall picture of how to get something done and how to get something from A to Z. So. Okay. director.
1: And this might be the hardest question for you. If you could reboot any stage production. Mm. And cast any three men, living or dead, in it. Oh, God. What would be the production and who would be the brothers you cast?
0: <laughs> Stage. Stage play. Wow. That's difficult. Denzel, let's go with Sidney Portier and mm-hmm. Paul Roperson. Oof. I would love to see all of them together. I don't know what I would put them in. I would love to see them three together. They would, they're, they're, they're giants. And to see them share a stage would be phenomenal, more so than a movie. I would love to see them share the stage. And let's put them in, which is my favorite August Wilson play, uh, Jitney. So let's put those three in in, in Jitney. I would love to see that. And Jitney wouldn't be a reboot because it just happened a few years ago, which was a phenomenal play when it hit Broadway um, about four years ago. But I would want to see Jitney because that's my favorite August Wilson piece with those three.
1: Man, that's fantastic. Brother, listen, you've been gracious with your time. Thank I you. so appreciate it. You all, please support Brother Keenan Scott. Want you all to get to Broadway if you can. It's not always easy, and, and, and I'm, I'm interested even in ha- how the world is starting to open up again, what that's going to mean for the season. But Thoughts of a Colored Man is, is worth the watch. Please, you all get out there and see it and support my man, brother. How can they follow you if they want to follow you and know all the other work that you're doing besides this production?
0: Great. So you you can follow me. I'm, I'm online everywhere. You can find me at Keenan Scott II. I'm on Instagram at, at Keenan the Muse. If you want to find any news about any projects I'm doing, you can go Kenan Scott.com. And if you want to stay updated on a play, go to thoughtsofacolorman.com.
1: Man, brother, again, thank you so much for joining thank us, brother. Thank you and, We're going to stay with you, all right?
0: Absolutely. We'll, We'll definitely stay connected.
1: And there it is. Man, listen, I continue to be humbled by the brothers that find it not robbery to come and have conversations with us. And in large part, talk to us in ways that they don't necessarily get a chance to in other places. And so, I really want you to support Keenan's work if you are in New York or heading to New York, uh, you've got to support Thoughts of a Colored Man if you can get tickets. I I got tickets, I'm telling you right now for opening night. And uh, I'm excited that I'm going to be in the house with what I think is just a brilliant cast of brothers who are going to bring this incredible work. I don't want to even say to an elevated level but to a new level. Uh, so support this brother. He is supporting us with every single thing that he does. I hope that you all have a fantastic week that is filled with joy, that you walk in a energy of purpose to create whatever it is you believe you were put on earth to do. Man, because when each of us does that in a way that is driven by excellence and mastery, And we see each other as humans, man, there is not a whole lot that we can't do. I want to say thank you to the entire Men Thrive team, to Fran and her team, to Madison, our associate producer, to every single person that ensures that we're able to bring a show to you on a weekly basis that for some reason you keep listening to. Y'all be good to each other this week. Be good to yourself. Love those around you. But most importantly, love yourself. I'm out.